Hey, it's Kenny. Welcome to episode number five. For this one, I'm hanging out with Nate Knott of Regional Transit District in Stockton, California. Stay tuned. Well, what we have is at RTD, we're doing three completely different things that are integrated. We're restructuring our route service because of trends in transit that have forced us to look at new ways of operating our service. Two, we're implementing two huge new express routes known as bus rapid transit. You're probably familiar we have our maroon colored Metro Express buses. Mm -hmm. Now increasing that from three routes to five. That's going to happen in two phases. First one will come on in January and the next one will come on in springtime. And then in the middle of all that, we're incorporating new electric buses into both the regular service and the express service. Mm -hmm. So what is your What's your title for RTD? I am the Director of Planning and Scheduling. And mm -hmm. what that means is the primary duties is to plan the routes and schedules, uh, monitor, review, and analyze the ridership and performance data, such as how many passengers we get per hour of service, uh, and make sure those statistics go off to state, local, and federal officials properly, which helps get to us to receive and apply for our funding. And then the other thing that we do is that we also plan with community, the community new services that, for new developments and things that are coming online, uh -huh. such as in Stockton. There's, we're on the, very close to being on the verge of several major infill developments which bring retail housing to downtown, retail business and housing to downtown, which will therefore put more emphasis on bus ridership out of our downtown transit center. Uh -huh. So what got you into this, Nate? Well, I've always been interested in transportation. Uh, my original career was broadcasting. I was once the radio play-by-play -play voice of Chico State, uh -huh. uh, and I was in news production for a couple of years. But as a little kid, we used to visit San Francisco, and my father used to drive us all the way over to the area by uh, the San Francisco Zoo, because at that time, this is the early 60s, I'm very old, the parking was free in that area. I don't think there's any free parking in San Francisco now. There <laughs> nope. was free parking then near the zoo. We would then catch the El Terrible streetcar line. Now, remember by the 1960s, the United States did not have much streetcar service in general. Mm -hmm. And the best of what was left of streetcars was probably San Francisco. But the El Terrible line not only was a streetcar route, it went through a thing called the Twin Peaks Tunnel. And it zipped through that tunnel at 60, mi 60 miles per hour plus. So as a little kid riding an actual electronic-driven streetcar on rails mm -hmm. through the streets of San Francisco and zipping through this tunnel made transportation, public transportation, very exciting to me. Mm -hmm. And then as a little kid growing up in a little town called French Camp, which was a little bit south of Stockton, I used to watch, we, we had two transcontinental railroads going right through the French Camp, the Southern Pacific and the Western Pacific mm -hmm. at that time, both of which are owned by UP now. And I used to watch a wonderful passenger train called the California Zephyr zip through French camp at about 95 miles an hour twice every day, one in each direction. So 95 yeah. miles an hour. Yeah, this 95 is, miles. And this is when? 1960s. And I'll explain why the speed's different than Amtrak now. And there is an Amtrak California Zephyr, by the way, which is a very similar train. But this was the original Western Pacific train based out of Oakland, coming from Jack London Square and going through the Altamont, then mm -hmm. through the valley and through Oroville and the Feather River Canyon and then eventually going into the uh, Rockies and on to Chicago. The Amtrak train today originates also in Oakland, but it goes the route to Sacramento and over the Sierra Nevadas. 
and not the Feather River Canyon. Mm -hmm. Then eventually winds up in the Rockies and does the same thing. What do you think? Um, I guess going into that. Uh, so that's why I like transportation. I yeah, had a great so experience with the streetcars and watching this great passenger train. I should point out that train was all stainless steel. Yeah. Which most Amtrak trains are now, but it was pure stainless steel and had five dome cars on it. Mm -hmm. This is before double decker trains. There used to be some trains that had single level cars with a glass bubble top. Hmm. And this this one had five of those. And it could go 95 miles an hour then because certain track speed limits were allowed with certain types of signaling. Mm -hmm. In this current era, the kind of signaling that Amtrak can afford to have operating on freight railroad track that they have to contract for, uh -huh. usually their top speed is 79. So it's not really a technology problem, but uh, just they're limited by what tracks they're on, I guess. It's limited by the amount of signaling that the railroad, the host railroad is willing to put into uh -huh. that. And then also there's a thing called super elevated curves. Freight railroads, when they ran their own passenger trains, and were generally required to, by the way, by mandatory laws and regulations, uh -huh. when freight railroads ran their own passenger trains, most of them on the mainline tracks that carried passenger trains had the special signaling to go above 79 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And then many of them had super elevated curves engineered into the mainline right away, which allowed for banked turns by trains, huh. which could take curves at 5, 10, or 15 miles an hour faster than they currently can now. Now, the reason they would get rid of those banked curves, by the way, is they're really huge, tall box cars and double stack shipping container cars can only go through those curves. It's not good for them to go through at a slower speed. Uh -huh. and freight trains can't always go at 70 or 89 miles an hour. Right. So, so therefore, most railroads flattened out their curves after they got rid of passenger service with the takeover of Amtrak back in 1971. Huh. Okay, and sorry if I'm just going to have a cold, so <laughs> I, I, I sound sick, uh, but... Oh, you sound okay to me. So in Stockton, what's, uh, so what exactly is your role to improve uh, public transportation here? Well, first of all, with San Joaquin RTD, which is the regional transit district, mm -hmm. uh, we're the primary provider for most fixed route service in all of San Joaquin County. But we are a Stockton-based system. Mm -hmm. In fact, we originally were the Stockton Metropolitan Transit District. And through state-enabling legislation in the 90s, we became a countywide system. But my primary role is would be a triple role overall. First of all, working directly with RTD, I directly try to improve transit service and the access the public has to it and the, and the attractiveness to use by trying to plan good service within the limitations of our budget. Then we also design the routes and schedules for the services that we operate throughout the county, connecting Stockton to the outlying cities such as Manteca, Ripon, Tracy, Lathrop, uh, mm -hmm. Lodi, and so forth. So those schedules are important, and one of the major things those schedules do is allow people to come into Stockton for services or to go to Delta College, for example, uh -huh. and jobs. And then I happen to be away from RTD and outside of RTD. Well, it, RTD enables me to be in a lot of meetings that I get invited to, and then on my own as an advocate, I go to many community meetings where we not only discuss the need for good public transportation and the justification, but because of me working at San Joaquin RTD, I can explain what is reasonably feasible in a way to implement some new service or provide a service and what it costs and what the political consequences of our trying to have that service uh -huh. or to get it funded. Whereas a typical person might just walk into a room and say, oh, we need light rail on Pacific Avenue. They, they, they may not realize it's $100 a million, $100 yeah. million dollars a mile to build that uh -huh. or, the, or the enormous environmental and Title VI environmental justice regulations you go through right. to implement something or build it. Whereas 
I can walk in there and say, that's a great idea. This is what we have to think about to do it, though. This, 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 A, B, C, D, E, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I think I add value to conversations by my knowledge of working in and around the transit industry. And what does RTD stand for again? Uh, uh, RTD stands for the Regional Transit District. And we're officially, our t full name is the San Joaquin Regional Transit District, mm -hmm. which we prefer just to be called RTD. Now, the only thing about acronyms like that, though, when it comes to transit districts, mm -hmm. other places will have them also. Mm -hmm. So there is an RTD in Denver, which is, which is way bigger and a lot more famous than we are. And there's a couple other RTDs sprinkled around the United States. So you have to sort of distinguish yourself from time to time of who you are. I'll sometimes put RTD hyphen Stockton or something like that in, in some correspondence so people understand we're the RTD in Stockton, not the one in Denver or somewhere else. So why should someone in Stockton that uses a car or doesn't use public transportation, why should they care about RTD? Well, there's three good reasons why a person who doesn't use a bus should still like having buses around. First of all, on a handful of roads, we, we don't have enough ridership or service to relieve a lot of congestion, but we do relieve congestion on Pacific Avenue. We have over 4,000 trips a day on Pacific Avenue, and believe it or not, we, we provide over a million transit trips, actually quite a bit more than that, but somewhere around 1.2 million transit trips a year on Pacific Avenue alone. So number one, can be congestion relief. Number two, and the, the Route 40 on Pacific Avenue would be a good example of this also, if you're taking a million trips off Pacific Avenue every year, that's all those cars that aren't parking in the parking lot. So the parking lots would be less likely to be completely full or you'll get a better parking spot because there's less people there. And the businesses would not have to waste so much land building more parking mm -hmm. or maintaining it. And then lastly, when you get some bigger numbers with transit, like the one, like the one million on Pacific Avenue, and our, our overall annual ridership is over four million, generally, uh, then you also are getting some pretty significant uh, gas house, greenhouse emissions reductions. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, on a round trip from downtown Stockton to Hammer Lane and back on the Route 40, it's not unusual for us to pick up over 120 people on that one round trip, mm. in that one hour of service. Well, if you figure the average car has 1.2 people in it, which is a statistic that's been very steady over the years, then we just, if we carried 5,000 people, then we took about 3,800 cars off Pacific Avenue that day. And then if you start doing the math, you can see it's some pretty serious greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. Or I should say cars necessarily, but at least trips taken. So how are you getting the word out as far as or educating people about your views on the public transportation system and RTD here in Stockton and San Joaquin County? Well, transit is not something you have, that we have the funding, nor is it a simple subject where you just do mass advertising. You can't sell transit like mm -hmm. you sell a candy bar or... or deodorant or something. So you can't just put mass ads on television. You can't, first of all, get all the money and then you can saturate ads, but to promote buses to actually have people using them, they'd have to know where to pick them up, where to go, how to read the schedule, and all these other, you can't put mm -hmm. that in a TV commercial. So what you generally do is go to a lot of meetings and you advocate for transit. And what actually seems to be the most successful thing that I do to promote transit, or at least the acceptance or the willingness to fund transit, Again, like you said, there are people who may favor it, but they're not going to ride it themselves. But you've got to convince them that somebody else should. Mm -hmm. The number one thing I probably accomplish by going to meetings, and the number one way I probably promote transit use, is by being at meetings and answering questions about transit. 
how it operates, why we operate the way we do, why the routes are structured the way they are, and what it costs to operate the service, and how our subsidy for service stacks up against the subsidy that goes to roads and other things. The biggest myth in America is that cars pay for themselves through gas and excise taxes. They don't. If you take all the taxes dedicated to providing roads and sidewalks and traffic lights and all the various infrastructure that goes around an automobile and parking, and you take all that, you take the taxes or fees that are dedicated supposedly to transportation, then the roadway system in America that cars run on is about 75% subsidized. The direct taxes or fees that are designed to pay for that only cover about 25% of the cost. The rest comes out of general funding from your city, county, and local governments or federal government. Mm -hmm. Our fare box recovery ratio, as far as the fares people pay to ride our bus, covers about 20% of the cost of bus operations. So in the end, if you do all the math and you really calculate it fairly, roadways are just about as heavily subsidized as transit service. Mm -hmm. So I also break that myth. And once people realize that, they're much more willing to consider that there should be transit service retained, funded, or increased. So with that new tax coming in California, does that affect your guys' operations at all? Yes, what it would do is it would allow for the first time in over a decade, maybe for some new revenues to come into us to actually apply the service. So what I mean by that is RTD's budget, our actual money that we have to operate service this year in real dollars, not estimated, not adjusted, mm -hmm. is the same now as it was 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. Our budget this year for fiscal year 2018 is about $34.6 million for the whole operation. And back in 2006, it was about $34.5 million. Most anyone knows you, if you take the exact same amount of money, not adjusted for anything, but the exact same amount of money in your pocket, that you can't buy the same amount of things with that now, 12 years later, than you could buy 12 years ago mm -hmm. because of cost of living increases, inflation, other things. So the gas tax increases that are coming they were supposed to take effect. Was that today or uh, what? It's in November. I thought it was today that it takes effect. Yeah, but today, I... November 1st, 2017. Mm -hmm. yeah. What that brings the potential of is after, it goes, after that money goes to the state bureaucracy, that eventually some of that money is going to get allocated to transit districts. Mm -hmm. It also goes to roads and infrastructure and other things. But yes, ultimately, RTD should receive some sort of formula allocation funding out of all that which would be new revenues to us that we don't have now. So uh, what's unique about RTD that, or anything that stands out from other uh, transit districts? How long is your show? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. We actually have a lot of things we can talk. For a relatively small transit district, we, we are very complicated. District. We have a lot of things going on. But I'll give you a simple, straight answer. We were one of the first transit districts in the whole United States to have diesel-electric hybrid buses. We helped actually get the manufacturer, manufacturing of the buses certified for California. RTD did that with Gilling Brothers and Hayward and GM and got it through the California Air Resources Board. So we helped pioneer diesel-electric hybrid buses. Mm -hmm. Then we helped pioneer bus rapid transit for the West Coast. We're one of the first agencies on the West Coast and even in the whole United States to have effectively used and successfully operated bus rapid transit which is often known as BRT by its acronym. That's essentially running more frequent serv services with beautiful new, beautifully branded buses using nice shelters and stations, not just a sidewalk pole for mm -hmm. a bus stop, 
and running the service usually earlier in the morning and later at night and marketing it a little bit. We we're one of the first to do that. Now, we are one of the we are the first transit system in the entire United States to dedicate all electric bus service to a bus rapid transit line, which happened on August 6, 2017 with our Route 44 between our downtown transit center and downtown Stockton and the South Airport corridor, mm -hmm. going all the way to Arch Road and Highway 99, where there's a conglomeration of charter schools and some businesses and some warehouses near Arch Road and Highway 99 in South uh, East Stockton, fairly close to where our airport is. Mm -hmm. So, um Sacramento, I currently live in Sacramento, and you see a lot of light rail there. I think they're, they've expanded in the, within yes. the past few years, too. So why not have light rail here? What's the, what's the pros and cons of that? Uh, the difference between, between Sacramento and Stockton as far as having light rail and not having it, besides the obvious population difference, and Stockton is a big city, by the way. We're by, roughly the 64th biggest city in the United States or something like that. We've already surpassed... I believe Cincinnati and St. Louis in actual population. Mm -hmm. That's city limit population, of course. Having said that, the reason Sacramento was able to do light rail is three major reasons. First of all, they are a major hub of that entire region. Stockton's a hub of a kind of a sub-region, but Sacramento is the hub of all of Northern California, arguably. Mm -hmm. San Francisco is to an extent, but geographically it's on the west coast, on the ocean. So it's a three-sided city. Sacramento's a hub in the middle of California with things flowing in four directions. So it is a major hub, which means a lot of things go through Sacramento. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of freeway traffic in Sacramento that Stockton's only beginning to see now. Mm -hmm. So they already had congestion, big time serious morning commute, evening commute congestion on freeways and city streets 20, 30 years ahead of us. So that's number one. Number two, they were extraordinarily fortunate that at the time they had Jerry Brown as governor in his first terms and I'm, this is not an endorsement for Jerry Brown, but he happened to be governor and he's pro-transit. And he had a transportation secretary of Caltrans named Adriana Gianturco, who was very, fairly, very much in favor of transit. And some highway funding that was sitting around and hard to use because they're going to have to ram a freeway through a bunch of city neighborhoods that didn't want it. They made the wise decision to divert this big chunk of money to start a light rail line. So they had the congestion, they're a big city, they're also a spotlight city. By spotlight city, I mean they're the, they're the seat, you know, the home of California governor, mm -hmm. the capital state of California. So you had a friendly governor, you had a friendly legislature at the time, a friendly mayor, all pro-transit people, and a kind of a one-time huge chunk of money sitting around that was intended for kind of wasteful road spending. That they actually were going to have a challenge spending. So all those forces combined allowed them to invest in light rail. And the first line, I happened to live in Sacramento when all this happened. The first line, of course, operated from Roseville, or outside of Roseville, on the I-80 corridor, down to downtown Sacramento. Mm -hmm. Now, I happened to once time live on La Riviera, La Riviera Drive. Same here. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. And I saw the other line built and opened while I lived there. Mm-hmm which is the line that goes out. Then then I used to board it. Is that all the 65th? Yeah, that one? and it went to Butterfield at that mm -hmm. time. It was okay. originally built. Now it's been extended all the way out to Folsom. Yep. And I've never had a chance to ride the extension, by the way. But I literally watched that get built from the ground up, and I lived there for about a year or so after it opened. Ironically, our CEO at RTD here, mm -hmm. Donna DiMartino, was then a young lady, one of the first women supervisors in transit with mm -hmm. RT. She did most of the official testing 
of the light rail vehicles mm -hmm. when those lines are being built. But anyway, getting back to that, so they had that line, and then those two lines were over, over a couple of years with some good marketing and better scheduling of service, and they had a huge state university in the middle of all this, mm -hmm. Sacramento yeah. State, with all those factors, and, a, and, and then and a pretty good downtown core of people coming to work because of the state capitol and all the business offices that, that would surround that. With all those factors, it was ripe for light rail when they built it. Mm -hmm. And then it was became very successful for a number of years. And now, of course, their most recent extension has made it all the way out to Consumers River College mm -hmm. uh, near Elk Grove. And, but so getting back to Stockton, we don't have that kind of freeway congestion. We don't have state government sitting right here at hometown. Right. There's no available chunk of money just sitting out there. And between our local city government and our county supervisors, we st transit still has to be proven here. And we don't have the huge morning. We, for transit, our transit ridership patterns here mm -hmm. do not have a heavy morning worker commute rush hour ridership. Sacramento did have a lot of transit ridership on express buses mm -hmm. that were running on clogged freeways. And they needed to relieve that by putting those people in the light rail. Okay. We don't have that factor here. Our ridership is primarily in the morning and afternoon is our peak ridership. Early morning and mid-afternoon is our peak ridership because the peak ridership of RTD is actually students, high school and college. Hmm. And then you mix in workers and, and uh, fixed income people and seniors and disabled around that. So we don't have the classic clogged up urban traffic jam transportation pattern that other cities have hmm. that will cause you to make a great investment in the enormous infrastructure cost of putting in light rail. So where's the future of RTD going here? Well, we're, we're now expanding the electric bus service. I mentioned we were the first uh, in the nation to have an all-electric BRT line. Mm -hmm. I should point out we were the fourth transit company in the entire nation to have electric buses at all and second in California. I say this because this one line is a small part of what we do. We're, by, within six months from now, we're going to have 15 electric buses in service on about seven different routes. Right now, we're operating on a regular basis seven to eight electric buses on four routes. So okay. we're expanding that, and we've made a pledge. This is a national pledge we made in a national press conference that we're going to be all electric by 2025. Hmm. And we could become... Now, there'll probably be other agencies that may arrive there first, but... If we really accomplish that, and I think there's a good chance that we will, because a third of our fleet will be electric by the end of this year, the third, third of our regular city active fleet, we probably would be one of the larger nations, uh, um, sorry, probably be one of the larger systems to be all electric with all of its fixed route in the metropolitan area running electric. There's major electric bus service in San Francisco now mm -hmm. and in Seattle and a few other places. But th that those systems would never become all electric. Right. Major. But we actually have a chance to do that. Is there an added cost to being electric versus a diesel or a hybrid bus? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pay me now, pay me later thing. Kind of like with light rail versus buses, you have a pretty heavy infrastructure cost at the beginning. You have to put in charging stations. Mm -hmm. And they're fairly expensive. And it takes a while to construct them. It takes roughly four to six months to put in a charging. We, do, we use what's called a quick charge. Mm -hmm. There's a big thing with this big tower with a pod up in the air, and when the bus pulls in, it pulls in on, through a computer guidance system, by the way. The bus pulls in, this pod drops down, makes contact with the bus, and charges it in about 10 minutes. Having said that, that's an infrastructure charge, and sometimes you have to redo your boarding platforms. Other mm -hmm. than that, you're fine. 
The buses at this point still cost more than a diesel electric hybrid bus or a traditional diesel bus. By the way, in California, you cannot buy for transit use a regular diesel bus. It has to be some sort of alternative fueling such as CNG or hybrid and or zero emissions such as electric mm -hmm. to even buy them and operate them. We already have a state law prohibits the purchase of diesel buses for transit use. However, once you're operating them, to answer, fully answer your question, once you operate them, depending on the electric rates you get, and we're, working, we're trying really hard to get some, our own solar generation equipment so we can start feeding our own electricity to mm -hmm. our buses. But if you're doing it off the grid, like PG&E or other some source, depending on the rates, if you get relatively average electric rates, it costs one-third as much to operate an electric bus as the equivalent fuel cost in diesel fuel. Approximately, we get approximately, if you were to convert the heat energy from electric bus service to burning fossil fuel for your, for your, your generation of motion, you get about 18 miles per gallon on an electric bus versus four to six miles per gallon on a diesel electric hybrid bus. Our hybrid buses get generally five to six miles per gallon. Mm -hmm. A traditional old fashioned regular diesel transit bus gets about three to 3.5 miles per Doesn't sound like very much. <laughs> yeah, and even, even CNG, which seems so high tech to people, they only get three, three and a half miles per gallon. Jeez. That's, now CNG that's... has the advantage right now of being very cheap, which it mm -hmm. always wasn't, or wasn't always. It's now very cheap to purchase. Uh, it's not actually as easy to maintain, however, as a diesel electric or electric bus. Okay. By the way, electric buses are the cheapest by far for maintenance. You don't have that many moving parts in an electric bus. That's true. You don't have a transmission. Well, they do, but they're getting away from that. We're going to go to the model that the railroads use. By the way, people don't realize your basic diesel train that you see out there has been out there since the 30s and 40s. Jeez. <laughs> That's a hybrid vehicle. You have a diesel engine inside of the, 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 the hood, uh -huh. which turns an electric generator, which then sends the juice to electric motors on the axles. Mm. That's how diesel freight railroads have always operated. And that's how the electric buses with the wires in San Francisco, okay. your wire, your electric buses with wires, your trolley buses. Yeah. Actually, that's direct electricity going it's electric. to motors. Okay. There's no transmissions or and no fuel holding tanks or anything in those buses. And they have surge power, by the way. Our buses, I don't think, are equipped with that, but a mm -hmm. electric bus in San Francisco off the trolley poles, they can push <clears> a surge bus button, but they get 35% more uh, energy for up to a couple of minutes, mm -hmm. which they can enable them to climb up the hills very rapidly. Okay. Also with the wire system that Muni has, the old-fashioned trolley wire system, yeah. as one bus is sucking electricity out coming up a hill, the bus going down the hill is doing regenerative electric power. So it's giving it back. back into the Interesting. Now our diesel electric hybrid buses, as do hybrid cars, do have regenerative uh, power transmission through your braking and coasting. When all that's happening, mm -hmm. the motor reverses into a generator and produces electricity that goes into the storage battery. Now, I should point out, I mentioned infrastructure costs and charging stations. It looks like we're only three to five years away from having good extended life batteries that will probably power transit buses for an entire And, day and you see those ride. battery technologies improving? Yeah, it's all dramatic. And making things more efficient and... Right. I, I look at it where if, it, if it's... If it's long run, if it's going to be cheaper, that that's the way to go. I think a lot more long-term thinking is always a better way right. to think no anyways. And if you're getting clean electricity, such right. as solar or hydroelectric, for example, now how much no do you know the percentage of like clean electricity versus, you know, because not all electricity is necessarily clean. Now, for all the criticism PG&E gets, and they mm -hmm. have a fair amount of reasons to have criticism, PG&E does, I think, in California generate 
35% of, I don't think most Californians realize, I think about 35% of our statewide energy from PG&E mm -hmm. is clean. In the okay. sense it's geothermal, it's hydroelectric, it's hydro dams, mm -hmm. and other various, and, and wind power. Mm -hmm. they, of course, they don't do much of that themselves, but they do have to buy the power that is generated by the big windmills right. across the state. And there's a fair amount of solar power in California, too, mm -hmm. both on houses, and there's some, and you get into Southern California, in the more desert, arid areas, there's actually quite a few, I think they call them sun farms. I've seen them, I think I've seen one in Vegas, where the big, like, yeah. like all these different, all these mirrors collect into a right. beam on top, and I think that produces a right. lot. I've heard, too, actually, Las Vegas is 100% renewable now as far as municipal that makes city. Sense. With all those neon and flashes, well, <laughs> probably not neon anymore, probably LED now. But right. I don't think the city is, but I, th I think the city-run items, oh, like right. street lights, okay. I think they're 100%, but not... May be tough right. to get and the whole Levi's, city. Yeah, and Levi's Stadium in San Francisco, I think, is supposed to be mm -hmm. almost totally renewable energy for the. It, well, unfortunately, none of the energy gets into the 400 players yet. Mm. They're working on that. Wow, almost for a half hour. So far, you're right. the fourth episode. This is the longest show, so oh, okay. it'll be the longest show in a while. But it's good though, yeah, because yeah. I know Nate. He has a lot of passion for his his job, which is good. I think um, it's good to see RTD in Stockton has someone that's dedicated to their job and. To them proving to the lives of you know its and citizens. And I'm lucky to have a CEO and a, and a management structure mm -hmm. that's always trying to go to the cutting edge. Right. So yes, we're going to be all electric, and probably by 2025, they'll probably all be battery buses. So okay. That, which will reduce, which will take away some of that infrastructure charge, or cost of building the towers. Mm -hmm. Now that will be partially. You'll have to partially go out and get generators or solar power to charge the batteries. But the point is you can be charging overnight when there's less peak energy use also. Hmm. Okay. Because right now we have to charge throughout the day, and there's times we're charging our buses when all the air conditioners are on in the summer. Right. So, yeah, that, so, so if we went all electric right now, there'd be some challenges with that probably. So how does one find out about RTD? Yeah. How do we find out about it? Where oh, do we go? We find, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have you know, a website, and, and, and we have the, you know, the, the, you can get us at, you can also send us information and find us at www. Uh, lowercase www dot lowercase sj uppercase rtd dot lowercase com okay so that's the main way to contact and go on our website we also have you uh, rtd youtube site and all those various things cool yeah. all right thanks nate thanks thank for you thanks for joining me Talk to you huh all right great to be on your show hey big thanks again to nate and also to you for listening so i appreciate that to check out previous episodes go to kenny mccann dot com slash podcast if you're on instagram check out my handle at kennymccann.ca for the latest photos and videos i have done until that next episode take care <laughs>